Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. On this episode, we're speaking with Jonathan Westinda, founder and CEO of Windmill Developments. So this was a convergence of the factors of both my family background, of, you know, I'd say my, my interest in, you know, sort of more the innovation side of business. And I would say that the, the one factor which I give a lot of credit to in sort of crystallizing that picture for me was a book by Amory Levin and Paul Hawkins called Natural Capitalism. Windmill has become one of Canada's most well-known green building developers, having completed over 1 billion of developments since 2003. With a background that touches on construction, economics, and ecology, Jonathan is specifically interested in creating alternative financing vehicles to embed sustainability into projects. With his work at Windmill, he's become a recognized leader in Canada for finding innovative solutions for non-conventional lifecycle financing issues. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. So I want to uh, just jump right in and kick things off by giving listeners a history lesson. So give us a sense of where you evolved from over the years. Well, I had the good or bad of being born into a construction business family. My, uh, my parents ran what was one of the largest commercial construction businesses in my hometown of Ottawa, Canada. And so from that was uh, well immersed in, in sort of the, the, the world of construction from a, from a kid. And my parents were partners in the business. So that was always intriguing as well. But uh, they were always sort of of the nature, you know, they, I was lucky to have been brought up in a well-off environment, but they, they sort of worked on the principles of they weren't going to give us any money, they'd give us all the opportunity to earn money. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I uh, was working very young on a construction site at the age of 11, sweeping floors and doing other things. And that gave great discipline and, and work ethic to paper roofs going on at the same time, that kind of thing. But also gave me enough exposure that by the time I was, you know, getting to my senior year of high school, I uh, I was looking to run as far away from the construction industry as possible. <laughs> sure, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, get away from, from the family. From kind yeah. of a level of interest and just the uh, you know being exposed to. I mean, it's a very a lot of friction. You know, a lot of a lot of good things, but I'm not meaning to be totally. But uh, the, you know, it's it's generally. A slow innovation, lots of friction, you know, high tension type environment. And so with that, went to university, did an economics degree. And even that was largely because the rest of my family had all become engineers. And so I had to do something different and did management consulting for several years after my undergraduate, did a graduate degree, uh, a master's in business at Trinity College in, in Ireland of all places, and came back, got into more of the technology space, sort of moved along fairly quickly, and uh, ended up getting into venture capital and, and sort of venture capital services, which I loved doing, you know, high, fast-paced, lots of very bright people, but, you know, a high failure rate, and to a certain degree, very volatile in in, in, the, in the environment. And sort of a bunch of things came together, merging up to about 2003, 
which is about when at the time there was the uh, you know sort of tailing off and the and the tech bubble going or tech burst of the tech bubble, sure. but also my family and the business sort of at a crossroads in the sense that my parents were ready to step aside and we're looking for what succession would be. And so it had us as a family, you know, really look into some things, but it also had me drawn a few earlier interests in the sense that, you know, when we get into the spectrum of real estate, certainly, you know, construction is is sort of the um, uh, harder, more sort of real process driven piece of things. And as you move up the ladder, you get into developments and other things where there's more creativity within Lemon still and, and finance and had had some work in the uh, development world prior to going to do my MBA, but also, you know, always having had an interest in the environment and sustainability and wanted to get my master's in marine biology instead of my MBA, but for lots of different reasons that didn't happen. Huh. But, you know, with the intent of wanting to find a way to get into the business of the oceans, actually, in the business of the environment. And very intrigued by, you know, what we're seeing now is that confluence of pressures that are are forcing more responsibility, you know, as far as our behaviors and, and, and ecological footprint. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, can I pause you yeah, there? Because I really yeah, want to ask do. you, I want to yeah. I want to take a quick spin back to, and you, you went over this pretty quickly, but Trinity College in Ireland, how did you find yourself in, in Ireland? What was the story there? Yeah, it was an interesting story. So uh, in Canada, at the time, sort of the business school, you, one of the best business schools you'd want to go to was where I did my undergraduate, which is Western uh, University of Western Ontario in London. So I'd actually intended to go there. I'd applied there. And I was at a New Year's Eve party with a few friends that were there at the time. And they suggested to me, I have to meet their friend because I, I wasn't doing my MBA to sort of climb the career ladder. I was really doing it for a bit of a break and just, just getting a step back, bigger picture sort of thought time. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you got to go meet this guy, Frank. He's a good friend of ours. He's over at Trinity College in Ireland and he loves it. It's a great school. And, you know, we would have thought of it if we'd known about it kind of thing. And so anyways, ended up spending the night with him and... He sold me. I applied, got in. I ended up staying at his house actually for the uh, first few months that I was there, and turned out to be a great decision. So oh, it's, wow. uh, it was it was a different, you know, just pulling yourself out of out of the North American economy, U.S. economy primarily. Obviously, we're we're a ripple of that in Canada, but just the North American way of thinking versus the European way of thinking, which is a bit more patient, long term, and yeah, and, and sort of just more global perspective. It, it just, you know, it was, it was very intriguing. And I, I'll be honest, though, it was, uh, it was probably harder on my liver than my brain, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> a couple too many pints in, uh, throughout those years, perhaps. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you, you went there, you met your buddy, Frank, doing the pub scene, obviously learning a lot at, at Trinity. You, you mentioned kind of, was that the transition time when you were, when you were getting into sort of the, the oceanic and environmental mindset or, or did that come later? No, I'd, I'd always had a, an interest, and, and as I said, it is actually that was that decision was post the fact that I I wanted to do a, a master's in marine biology instead of my MBA, but because I didn't have a sciences undergrad, you know, it, it was just going to take essentially having to redo my whole undergrad. So that that's mm-hmm. what then changed my course to do my, my my MBA. But there was always an interest, and when I did my MBA, it was still with the out there sort of thought of, I'd like to figure out how to get into the business of sustainability. Yeah. Do you have any sort of uh, icons or leaders in the in the industry of sort of oceans and environmental work that 
that you looked up to during that time? Oh, certainly Jacques Cousteau and, you know, a lot of the, the adventures and, and, and work that him and his foundation had done and Silly David Suzuki Foundation, which is not just oceans, but, but sort of general environmental, certainly a lot of interest there. And then there was a lot of interesting sort of theoretical things going on as far as, you know, farming of the oceans. And down in Florida, there's, there's actually, there's only been one still today, but an underwater hotel, <laughs> you know, we get to some development underwater, you know, all mm-hmm. these kind of concepts were kind of cool that. Well, again, but but was was actually interested in we're kind of going the opposite way a bit, but in the sense of, of leveraging the oceans as a sense of food and farming and those sorts of things as well, and in, in uh, dealing with you know the exponential population growth that we 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 are now experiencing. Yeah, no, but it's very interesting because you you go to Trinity, you you have this kind of experience and and this further development within that area that that interest set that you have. Then you come back and you and you come back to Canada and, and to North America and you get into uh, what is essentially, I think you t- you told me you call that kind of high tech and, and then venture venture capital. So you'd make that transition and you come back and you get into that industry. So what what was that decision and kind of how did that how did you transition? Because you you do a little bit of kind of kind of tasting in these different industries, which I find very interesting. How did you land back into venture capital after that period? Yeah, so that you know, I, I would say these weren't necessarily uh, deliberate choices. There's there's external life factors that cause some of these things. You know, similar to my choice of going to Trinity, sort of being a random thing that happened. Uh, coming, my intent was never to come back to Canada. My intent was to stay and work in Europe for a few years and you know get some exposure and sort of move along the career path that I had been looking towards, but not planned. As I'd met my wife over in Ireland, and she happened to be from my hometown of Ottawa, which oh, wow. was a yeah. coincidence and. So as a result of that, I found myself unintentionally back in Ottawa for love, not for business. <laughs> and, you know, also sort of naturally then in a situation of, well, the natural thing would be for me to go into the family business. So I was now more in a crossroads of not so much a deliberate career choice as it was, as I just got to go do something different than what would be the natural thing here to do. Got it. And Ottawa at the time, Nortel was a large force, Corel Corporation, which uh, was a large software company at the time, was large force. There was a lot going on in the tech scene here. So it became sort of a natural outlet, got into that, uh, ended up working at Corel Corporation, which at the time was was making an aggressive push to come up with a Linux-based office suite to challenge Microsoft Office and a bunch of other things Linux-oriented. The CEO of that firm, you know, sort of liked me and and I was able to quickly sort of get more and more involved at a high level to the point that I ended up moving fairly quickly to get involved with a Linux-oriented venture capital firm based in Boston called Linux Open Source Capital, mm. which was sponsored by, you know, the CEO of this firm. And that sort of got me into what was now into a path of of sort of Venture-oriented things that now that was a that was a specific product focus on on Linux it had me going back and forth to Boston a lot and then another law firm here in Canada called Gallings there you have probably one of the best IP departments in the country but they were really challenged in the sense that they're having all these entrepreneurs coming with with some of the best tech IP but they were losing them on the business front because they weren't able to wrap that with you know the relative services and fundraising and venture coaching and all that kind of stuff. So they'd asked me to come back and myself and two partners created the joint venture company that was called Benbridge. And the intent of that company was to basically be both a combination of, of seed financing, 
executive coaching. My, my other two partners were senior level tech CFO and legal counsel that were able to bring you know the right advice to different businesses and really help businesses sort of get out of the gates from seed stage to initial A or or even to B round funding and management team and set them off. So, and that brought me into a whole diversity of things from AMOLED screens. These are the flexible screens that, that Samsung is now coming out with. That's actually uh, some of the genesis of the IP behind that was a company we worked with back in 2002 to telecom and other areas, but also at the time seeing solar and other sort of more sustainable technologies coming across the desk that we're actually starting to pencil as good investments. And that that was sort of a convergence of where you're starting to see some of the math for, you know, sort of more sustainable future and a bright business future converge and yeah. start seeing some of these opportunities. Okay. So we're starting to see the 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 picture coming together where you have this family family history and sort of the construction background. You go overseas, you have this interest in the environmental and ecological side of the coin, I'll call it. And then you come back and you get this experience in, in financing and, and venture capital. It's interesting. You really casually talk about that that phase of of your career, but I want to know: is, is that was that a time where you were just rapidly learning and figuring out kind of the the economics and the and the true professional side of that industry, or did you feel like it was a a natural fit uh, throughout those years as you were working in that that sort of sector? Oh, it was it was definitely a, every day was a huge learning. It was learning curve not only. I mean, the, the business model of that industry doesn't take a whole lot to figure out, you know, but but it, it does come around the creativity and ingenuity and, and, and the intellect of the ideas, right? Sure. And how you how you take an idea through a path to sort of take it from being an idea to something that has a business future, you know, which which has much more involved than just the IP, the idea, but it has so much to do with the people and the founders. And as most I think VCs would say, generally you're investing in the people and not not the idea itself. So just how to get a real framework on how to evaluate that or get people understanding how to wrap themselves with the right people. That whole part was was interesting. But I but I have to say some of my more exciting days were just when you're you know unlocking you're kind of figuring how a uh, you know the, the the one technology happened to be wireless sort of repeater technology, which had you sort of go very deep into understanding how wireless networks work and all those sort of stuff. And I'm not an engineer or, <laughs> or technical from a background. So just sort of yeah. some of those uh, days just probing through it and just understanding enough so that you can make sense of whether there's a business opportunity or not. We're always very, uh, you know, we're always uh, kept things interesting. Sure. Yeah. So this is 2002, 2003 is sort of the transition period, right? Where where windmill development starts to become a clearer picture and, and sort of the intent behind windmill was in its early stages. What sparked that transition for you? And, and what did the team kind of look like during that phase? Yeah, so this was a convergence of the factors of both my family background of, you know, I'd say my my interest in, you know, sort of more the innovation side of business that was always seeming to be lacking in the in the, you know, construction development industry and sustainability and I would say that the the one factor which I give a lot of credit to, I was not have a lot of credit in, in sort of crystallizing that picture for me was a book by Emory Levin and Paul Hawkins called Natural Capitalism. And, you know, to this, that point, I'd read lots of books about the doom and gloom of the environment and, you know, climate change was going to burn us all off the planet. But that was one of the first books that really was looking to define it as an opportunity. 
and that we can be responsible and run healthy businesses and you know sort of get that that true triple bottom line sort of structure in place going forward and in that book it really did a good job of defining real estate particularly as as one of the bright industries where you know it was a clear path of you can make more money and be more sustainable at the same time yeah. and it, you know it, it was stuff i sort of looked and understood and then i but but it was sort of just crystallizing that a little bit really had me have a bit of an aha moment and and you know although we were struggling with the family business in the sense that there was an interest in running the construction business per se itself you know in that industry really you're working on a goodwill basis whether you're in construction or development or whatever and I can say that, you know, the, the family, particularly due to my parents, had amazing goodwill in the industry. You know, my parents had both my mother was the first female chair of the Canadian Construction Association. And my father had, had you know, taken fairly serious senior roles in, in many other similar capacities. So it was a case of how could we take some of that goodwill married together with a vision here that that I think, you know, both meets with my personal interest, but also think is fundamentally and has proven to be a real driver for innovation in a slow moving industry uh, being the construction development and you know get a compelling business plan that 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 we could be excited about and also taking it from the point of view of you know in, in, in real estate development typically you're starting with family enterprises of some nature and you're starting with father or grandfather who built a house at one point and then built two and then built four and then yeah, built sure. you know a neighborhood and then and regionally focused and and not really an industry that, that's got disruptive startups in it and different angles and things. And when we started Windmill was with the intent of sort of saying to my parents, okay, we ended up selling the construction business to uh, Acon, which is a large Canadian conglomerate, but also on the premise of saying like, that's your retirement Hope you like this isn't a succession in the sense of uh, us needing to buy your business or this or that. It was a clear separation. Uh, however, we had a lot of goodwill to work with. So started Windmill in a business that is very balance sheet focused. And to differentiate, if you don't have a big balance sheet, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so sure, yeah. uh, the, the sustainability function was both all the personal interests, innovation driver, but also a way to really differentiate in going to find ways to compete for different properties without biggest balance sheet necessarily being the only, you know, the, the waiting factor. So we yeah. had to sort of find opportunities, find uh, properties where people really cared about their legacy. And so from day one, the very first business plan written for Windmill was essentially with a clear vision to be the most sustainable, greenest, you know, mixed-use urban developer in North America, if not on the planet. That, that was kind of the objectives. And raised, went out and raised money like a startup. And so it had a seed round and it had a B round and deliberately targeted uh, uh, at first special interests. So we went to what was at the time the, the greenest architectural firm in Canada, which was, was Busby and Associate Architects, which has since been bought by Perkins and Will, to Keen Engineering, which was the greenest mechanical electrical design firm in Canada at the time, which has since been bought by Santec. You know, you name it. So we went to a, to sort of key strategic providers like that with the idea of not only with 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 bringing a team together that had vested capital to go do great things in the built environment. That that was sort of the approach. Yeah, and in terms of that differentiator, were there many other firms doing the the sustainability angle at that time? No, at the time we were. Uh, it's I joke a bit in the sense, you know, at the time I was sort of the uh, I was out doing talking and 
I was on the founding board of the Canada Green Building Council. I was I was the only developer there, <laughs> only building owner there. Otherwise, it was all you know architects and engineers. So no, this was still something that was seen as just flaky and is just going to cost a bunch of money and just unproven you know, at that I, time. And and I mean, I I think uh, it was put well by we one of the people we went to seek capital from was one of the largest kind of traditional developers in Toronto and their family that done amazingly well. And and the founder of that business sort of, you know, nodded away as I was going through and he said, you know, you're a really smart guy. You're going to lose a bunch of money. And then in about 10 years from now, you'll probably do pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that was sort of the perception of, you know, how this, you know, this was going to unfold because there's just no way you could feasibly build environmentally responsible buildings without sacrificing your bottom line. And so how often were you told, you know, no, this this isn't going to work. I'm not interested. You know, how many how many no's did you have to go through to get to those those first few yeses? Well, again, I uh, you know our our deliberate approach to go to like minded service providers who were trying to convince others that you could do this feasibly meant that I didn't have to suffer a lot of no's. In fact, we got quite a, a an endorsement to sort of say you know imagine if you're an architect who. All you're doing is trying to, to evolve your practice to be the leader in sustainability, but you can't find a customer. And here you've got someone saying, listen, I'll be your customer, you know, and, and uh, invest in the business and we can go do some great things, right? So that was that was true of M&E, of architect, of other things. Certainly once I got out of that realm and just to, you know, your more generic investor, it was a lot of challenge, but we were able to get enough going that, that you know, we were able to, to, to start putting our building blocks in place. So what was the very first windmill project? What did that look like? So the, there was a germination of, of one, and this, this was a legacy family project that there was an opportunity on and that was a partnership with the landowner that we were able to sort of take and spin and say, okay, we're going to take, you know, from a, from a concept point of view, we're going to take what would have been a generic building and we're going to make it the first lead platinum building in Canada and uh, lead I'm sure most people know what it is, but it's leadership in energy and environmental design. And it's probably the most definitive rating system uh, right now for for the built environment. And at that time, it was not yet set up in Canada. It was just a U.S.-based system. And we'd sort of grabbed onto that and said, that's how we're going to make our, our mark. That was kind of the the first project that kind of germinated the business plan. But the actual first project, real project that we landed, which was in hindsight, <laughs> unexpected, but was a uh, $750 million project in Victoria, British Columbia called Dockside, which was uh, essentially a partnership with the city of Victoria. And that was a result of, you know, again, because of the way we'd structured our entity, we were not really set up to say, okay, we're just going to focus on a certain region. We were really saying, we're going to go focus and find the opportunities, you know, naively at the time across North America, but but really Canada at least politically where the stars are aligned where the metrics for evaluation aren't going to just be the sharpest pencil and the biggest balance sheet but more getting the best triple bottom line outcome mm-hmm. and so the city of victoria had put forward a uh, an rfp and i ran into a gentleman called uh, whose name was joe van bellingham on the board of the canada green building council who at the time had a consulting firm called build green and he had been advising the city on you know where to take this rfp so sequence of things, we ended up buying his firm. He ended up becoming a partner in Windmill. We ended up bidding on that uh, project. We had Van City, who is the largest uh, financial co-op in Canada, but also 
very high on social sustainability and environmental sustainability, come in as a partner to be our balance sheet with us and brought us a very strong submission. There were, I think, 15 different submissions to the city, but uh, we ended up you know, coming out ahead on that. But it was one that was still to this day, and it's sad to say, one of the best RFPs I've seen run by any level of government trying to achieve a true triple bottom line outcome. Mm. It was a 300-point rating, 100 points for, for each of the sort of three legs of, of environmental, financial, and, and, and social, and really created a great you know, sort of evaluation framework. So that, that was our first big project that we kind of jumped into. And of course, that takes many years of project at that scale. So during that cycle, we completed some projects in Calgary and some more projects in Ottawa. And you know, now we're really um, more focused Central Canada at the moment in Toronto and, and Ottawa. But you know, that sort of really got us off to the races. Yeah, That project, uh, at the end of the day, became the first lead platinum community in North America, achieved the highest uh, lead platinum rating in North America, was designated by the Clinton Climate foundation as one of the top 16 most sustainable communities in the world it, you know, like it really hit the the marker on many fronts as far as uh, achieving a benchmark yeah and i have a link that i'll i'll be putting in the show notes for this but it's a uh, it's an atlantic article that you shared with me and i've been reading through this before we met today and it's very interesting there's a lot that goes into this i think talking about it is one thing but seeing some visuals behind it is a completely different experience so we'll definitely share that link in the show notes for this podcast Great. So this is the time where I feel like, uh, you know, as a listener, we're kind of starting to see the different pieces of the puzzle connect for you. So, you know, with Dockside Green, I think that's a really good example of all of your pieces of history coming together. And then what I want to ask next is, is at this point, you know, with that project, with that lead lead project underway, you know, how important was sort of that financial background to make that project a success? You know, did that did that help you understand the the, the real estate landscape? With the construction background, with the uh, economics background, with the ecological interests, you know, um, how did all those pieces kind of come together then? You know, real estate is fundamentally a financial management game. And really, when you layer in sustainability, it's trying to take what is a game that focuses on first cost only and try and get a, a business case that relies on life cycle costing. Because I think when one speaks about sustainably making sense for real estate. It's because over the life of an asset, you know, from a life cycle point of view, it it makes a lot more sense to invest up front to get long term savings. But the industry is driven towards get the cheapest thing you possibly can up front, and and who really cares mm-hmm. about the long term? And and so that's where you know I I would say in differentiating ourselves, there was and still is no lack of talent from. A sustainability design point of view and sustainability engineering point of view, but how you turn that into a business case that can then be financed in what is sort of traditional metrics has been and still continues to be a bit of a challenge. And that's where we spent and I've spent a lot of time really more on financial engineering around that to sort of be able to say to an investor, to a bank, to whatever, you know, we're achieving these different outcomes, but it's making no difference to the bottom line. And here's why and here's how. Yeah. So for for listeners that don't totally understand the the sort of the life cycle phrasing that you're using if if you were to walk into you know a meeting with with a banker or an investor who doesn't totally understand that what are the cliff notes there of sort of that life cycle approach 
it's kind of like saying, yeah, you, you can put a, uh, a plastic sheet over your house and it's going to cost a dollar, but that's going to last you. This is an extreme, you know, and, but that's going to, that's going to maybe last you one storm and it's gone versus you can put the best kind of slate tile and that sort of stuff on your roof that's very durable and will last 50 years, but it's going to cost you 50 times more upfront. So this might not be the best example, but I'll try and work it. Through. <laughs> but over the over the life of that, uh, let, let's maybe not use a plastic sheet. Let's use just your asphalt shingles because that'd be your typical roof. Over the life of those 50 years, you would have replaced those asphalt shingles maybe five to 15 times. And so when you weigh the fact, the cost of the number of capital costs you would incur over 50 years to maintain that roof as an asphalt shingle versus having done your your tile on the roof, then over the life of that, your tile is the better investment. Yeah. But I, I need to be able to have, instead of, let's say my asphalt shingle is $5 and my tile is 50, I need to have 50 today. And I don't necessarily have 50 and I can't get finite, but I can for five. So that's easy. And I'll just deal with, you know, investing another five in five years from now. So how do you make it make sense to invest the $50 today for everybody and show that that's got the same financial return as, as the five? Yeah. That probably wasn't the most no, that's, example. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. And, and, yeah. and it kind of leads me into this, this next part of our conversation, which I'm 100% leading us towards. But One Planet Living. One Planet Living is a, an approach that you have now taken on to your projects. And that has sort of been the transition from this lead approach to the One Planet Living approach. So let's jump into that. Yeah, and, I, and I'll start by saying that they're they're very synergistic. It's just more of an evolution, I would say. And it's, it's an evolution of mm-hmm. even the whole sustainability movement in the sense that when we, you know, when we started Windmill in 2003, I would say the whole buzz and the discussion was really around energy savings. How can we build buildings to consume less energy, period? Mm-hmm. As that sustainability dialogue evolved and, you know, energy savings, then, you know, we really started understanding fairly quickly the, well, we've understood for a while, but I guess just in the sense of now focusing on health, you know, how much time we we spend 80% of our time indoors and how much the indoor environment affects our health and wellness. So that sustainability discussion moved from energy plus health and wellness. And LEED has done a very good job of that in the sense of incorporating, you know, materials and selections of things for indoor air quality and that type of stuff. Now, I would say the dialogue has very much moved forward as, as we to, to social impact as well. And essentially, how do we create better fabric of community? How do we create, you know, better ways to create, deal with inequality in neighborhoods and also through the built forms that we do? And, and that's one where as you both move from an individual building to kind of community scale, as well as moving from just building performance to community impact, you know, we were struggling a bit to sort of say, okay, how do we how do we properly map that out, you know, as a broader framework? And that's where we came across the One Planet Living framework, which uh, was founded by uh, a gentleman named Perrin Desai out of the UK. It comes from, you know, One Planet Living concept itself spun out from the World Wildlife Federation, actually, and, and Perrin and his nonprofit bioregional were the ones that sort of shaped it into something for the built environment and, and for communities with a license from the World Wildlife Federation. But it, it was really, you know, it's, it's 10 key pillars of which building performance is a key part. You know, it's, it's sort of got a, a high bar of needing to see a path to carbon neutrality for a building. 
But it also gets into things like local equity. So how are you helping local businesses in your community with the type of development you're doing? How are you uh, health and happiness? You know, how do you rate at the end uh, or for inhabitants of that, whether they be office, how do you rate their overall well-being, you know, from a health and happiness point of view with the kind of development you're doing? Food and agriculture, you know, how are you, how are you bringing in sustainable agriculture, urban agriculture? So it just is a, it's a much broader and more encompassing that, that I think better defines true impact in, mm. in a broad sense. So that One Planet Living framework we adopted, uh, we, we have a consulting arm as well called uh, Urban Equation, which, which had done consulting work with One Planet Living on a number, a couple of communities in California and in Pittsburgh. And so from, from the development point of view, we came across a great opportunity here in my hometown of Ottawa, which was a 32-acre industrial pulp and paper plant that happened to be right downtown core. And for all the different trends that have driven the pulp and paper industry into some challenges, this asset came up for sale. And this was a, a sort of defining opportunity to create a real statement. I mean, in this case, the property, literally Parliament Hill, which is our equivalent of the Capitol building, looks you know, sort of right onto the property. So where, you know, what a better place to make. There's no better place to make a real statement. Mm-hmm. And it also had a whole level of complexity to it from the point of view of three different levels of government, some First Nations interest or Aboriginal interest, you know, all these sorts of things. So how could we sort of layer a fabric into this thing that could get, build some trust, get some comfort? You know, we we're already coming in with a track record that people at least trust we were going to create a highly sustainable community, but but also deal with some of these other social factors. So One Planet Living fit the bill. We created a One Planet Living action plan for the development and engaged our stakeholders around the One Planet Living Action Plan. And, you know, to give you an idea, in that action plan, there were like 47 different initiatives to reach out to local Aboriginal First Nations communities to partner in different ways uh, and incorporate in the development that allowed us actually, you know, from a business model point of view, this is this where we see success, take what was seen as one of the most complex properties in the city and likely would take years to get approvals. And we were able to get our entitlements within six months of wow. submission to completion by getting everybody sort of rallied around the principles for the One Planet Living framework of what it is we're trying to achieve. Hmm. And by doing that, it became less a argument about, you know, buildings are too t- tall and too much traffic and, all, and more about like, what is the ultimate fabric we're trying to create and the outcomes we're trying to create here and got the dialogue to that level as opposed to your typical bottom barrel, too high and too much traffic and all that normal stuff. Mm-hmm. And what was this development called? It's called Zibi. So Zibi. Yeah, um, Z-I-B-I. And, and we will, we'll link to this as well. And, and I want to I touch on, you know, you talk about a, lot, a lot about fabric and the outcomes and sort of the equity, uh, inclusion, health, happiness. How do you measure that? Like using this, using this development as an example, you know, what would be some examples of those those outcomes so the one plan living framework the other thing i'd say about it is it, it it is something that is you know it's it's got high level benchmarks which are tied to the the un sustainability principles actually and one planet living has informed those sustainability principles but you know there's there's key benchmarks like trying to achieve carbon neutrality some of the other things like health and happiness and local equity 
you kind of got to define it relative to your local environment. So you're able to essentially create a customized plan. It is reviewed and authenticated by a third party uh, board of experts that, that is based out of the UK. So there is there is some authentication to this. But you're you're customizing the local environment. So in the case of of a project like Zibi, for example, then you know health and happiness is a is a challenging one. So so at mm-hmm. the end of the day, that outcome is in the form of a survey of occupants and residents. And some of that is not only you know how they're feeling, but it's also which you've heard Richard Florida others say you know number of collisions you create, you know social collisions you mm-hmm. create by the the interactions on the site, those types of things. Local equity becomes a plan as to okay, how are you going to incorporate you know sort of the local community into this development? So as I'd mentioned earlier, in this case, a key factor was First Nations and and particularly the local Algonquin people. And so there was a real determined approach to creating a, we created a contracting, we, we did this on DocSet as well, but we created a threshold of a certain percentage of uh, labor threshold that would come from those communities to participate on the sites. We created opportunities to create businesses, you know, those sorts of things. So those are, those are we set those kind of thresholds and targets. That project is now under construction and will be for a while, but, you know, that's what we measure against and, yeah. and, and sort of show whether we're being successful with those things. But yeah, it is sort of, the, and that's always the problem when you get into call it sustainable or impact. Is there there are those tangibles which are real kind of just numbers and cents, and there those intangibles. And how do you really put a metric to the intangibles? And those are things that are, you know, get a little more unique, a little more customized. We have another project we're working on right now in downtown Guelph, Ontario in Canada. It's it's one of their, it's, it's probably the most significant urban revitalization uh, developments for their community. It's about 500,000 square feet. It has a new municipal library, a college, 300 residential units. But in that case, you know, that community is, all their water source comes from groundwater because they have no natural source. So water is a critical, critical thing for them. So in this case, a lot of our focus is on water. And how we're dealing with that, and and how we're working with the local community on that. So it's, it's it's sort of looking at the different pressure points and finding the right plans for for the local area. So would you say that at this point, windmill developments is really emphasizing the one planet living approach on all of all of your projects, current and, and sort of future the, those that are in the pipeline? That is so 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 it's evolved a, a couple of things on that front. But yes, is is the answer to that. And and to the extent that we may like, there's another building we have on a construction in Toronto right now where we didn't go full blown endorsed one planet living plan because it's a little harder on a on an individual building. But we use the one planet living principles to inform the theming and concept of what we did there. So in this case, we chose urban agriculture as one of the you know key legs to focus on. We developed this building. It's called the Plant, and it was marketed and designed all around the idea of terrace to table. You know, instead of a typical condominium that's got a common element with a pool table and things like that, it's got a community kitchen and community growing area. And it was a huge success. It won Project of the Year award in Toronto, and it's uh, you know won the best marketing campaign. A bunch of other elements around that. So certainly, we are using it as our framework. And and as we get to larger projects, we will do the full blown sort of endorsement authentication and for smaller projects it's sort of informing our thinking about yeah. about how we theme and how we bring things to market. You've also launched One Planet Living Fund. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is something we are working on at the moment and this this sort of now sort of aligns like real estate is is sort of a, a bit of a you know a, a triad of having the right 
piece of dirt, the right development mindset, and the right capital lined up. And you know what we'd learned through our different approaches to development is you can have the right dirt and you can have the right development mindset, but if you don't have the right aligned capital, it can cause friction to achieving the things that, that you want to achieve. And increasingly, and it's it's uh, enlightening despite you know high level political environment at say particularly at the federal level in the states, there's not a lot of encouragement from a proactive you know action on impact and sustainability. But at a at a grassroots level and at a capital level, uh, there's there's substantial momentum happening where people are increasingly getting focused on how do we invest more responsibly. So the idea of the One Planet Living Fund that we're working on is to just continue doing what we're doing in developing our projects, which we've generally syndicated and sort of developed on a one-off basis and organize that a bit more into a fund called the One Planet Living Fund and purposely and deliberately attract intentional like-minded capital, which we're being successful with in, in finding sources that you know, traditionally might not play in the real estate space or see real estate as a real impact area, but creating products for them that, that now make this an interesting space for them to to invest in and and through with us. And right, so that's yeah. something that we are we're out and you know knocking on doors and having lots of discussions with with people and, and getting some good traction on that. And with that, what we're hoping to do really also is that to date we have been a successful developer from start to finish of a project. It is uh, unfortunate that despite lots of discussion, there's not a lot of dock sides or zibbies that you can point to that the industry in general is creating out there. But the bar is definitely raising. Everyone is raising the bar. So we're really now increasingly focusing on how can we marry our consulting division, our development know-how, and aligned capital, and and maybe may work towards being a bit of a combination of leading-edge developer as well as development partner in the yeah. sense of coming as, as a fun vehicle into other developments where there's a, a desire to do something, but not the you know historical know-how and try and really accelerate that learning curve to come in as more of a development partner and help set up a development to achieve better outcomes. Yeah. And that's, that's really trying to deal with the 2080 thing as a, you know, as a Pareto principle in the sense that for any good thing, for any development, it's, you know, sort of 20% of your time is, is focused on, on getting it all set up, right? 80% is just the generic delivery, which lots of people can do. So how can we find ourselves spending more time on that 20% with more people getting better impact on a broad base than just being a hundred percent all the time? I have to imagine that you know part of that outreach for you know new partnerships, the One Planet Living Fund, um, comes back to something that you referred to earlier in the podcast, which is uh, the triple bottom line approach. And I and I know just from my my research and our discussions that for you, you know that combines sort of the the people, planet, and, and profits trifecta. And I know on your projects you aim for zero ecological footprints. You have you know really strong One Planet Living angled goals. And so as we begin to wrap up here, I'm really curious around why is that so important? Why One Planet Living? You know, why the emphasis there? And what what challenges are you facing in 2019 in accomplishing those goals when you're having these conversations and when you're setting up these frameworks? Yeah. So I'll I'll say you'll get three key drivers starting at the 10,000 foot level. You know, one is we we are being irresponsible 
And we, I think we are increasingly realizing that as a society and how we're treating our planet buildings, you know, depending on, on how you rate them, but they are responsible for about 35 to 40% of our carbon footprint. And we need to accelerate the action being taken in our built environment to lower that impact. And, and as you highlighted and what I failed to highlight, which was unique a bit about one planet living is it is about ecological footprinting. It's not just about carbon footprinting. Mm -hmm. And so it really is trying to take a cradle to cradle approach of full resource usage, you know, as, as we get into building. So we can speak about carbon impact of buildings, but they're, you know, the current contribution to landfill, to water usage, all these, like it's, it's substantial. So there is, there is that, that high level and, and, and increasingly, you know, there's greater awareness of that, but we, we just have to get smarter and implement faster and create better outcomes with, with the buildings we create. Then as we get down to more tactical business side of things, from a personal interest point of view, aside from the love for the environment, this is, I believe, going to be the point edge of the sword here that is driving an accelerated rate of innovation in an industry that is sort of one of the last to have its technological revolution. So when when you see companies like Google through a subdivision sidewalk labs working in Toronto on, on what's called the Keyside development to create what they see as a community of the future, you know, they're coming at it from a data point of view, but the outcome is one that is really creating a much more sustainable outcome because like anything and for any technological revolution, we need data. And that data then feeds into smarter choices and gets better outcomes. And you're getting this convergence of tech and buildings, which is un, unseen and unheard of in the past, happening at a much more rapid pace now. And so that's just a personal interest and, and also something that I think uh, makes the business itself a lot more interesting. And then finally, just from a pure business point of view, as I said, you know, if you can find ways to create the financial models that sort of bridge the gap, you know, from a, from a structure point of view of, you know, first capital focus to uh, life cycle focus, this business has return. Building buildings smarter, building buildings with more impact, it has return, uh, you know, long-term better returns, whether it just be from straight more resilient to just higher return on investment over the long term. And your smarter capital, a lot of your pension funds, a lot of these groups, like they're all recognizing that and and have, you know, sort of over the last five, six years transformed tremendously. If you look at Gresp and other rating systems that are, are sort of rating now public real estate companies from a sustainability benchmark point of view, they're getting substantial take up. So that's where, you know, that's that's sort of where I think people are coming aware to that. But But you can, you know, in this industry, you can do that. You can hit that trifecta and do it in a balanced way. And it's just not happening fast enough, unfortunately. Yeah. Jonathan, I, I, I really appreciate your time today. I mean, it's, it's been really intriguing to hear about your history, the different areas of experience that you've pulled from to build up windmill developments to what it is today. And speaking to someone who has such an interesting and varied background, I'm really interested in who you think that we should be paying attention to that's doing interesting, groundbreaking, inspiring work. Who comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I could go down to lots of individuals, but I think maybe I'll hit on on sort of more a few macro things that that I think are are happening, which will which will be interesting to follow. What one is, as I touched on before, is this convergence of of sort of major tech players sort of really starting to focus now into the real estate space, and that has a lot to do with with basically making. You know, I, I call a smart building the same as a sustainable building. They're all the same, so they're, they're, you can call it smart city language if you want but it's somewhat the same. And so you're seeing 
you know, Google makes some heavy bets through its subsidiary Sidewalk Labs in, in, in Toronto on, on Keysight. You're making, seeing Panasonic do very large community scale type things. You're seeing uh, Bill Gates actually is doing a smart community down in Arizona, I believe. So you're just seeing this interesting convergence where you're getting that kind of tech thinking into real estate and data focused and all with the drive to, I think, create a more sustainable outcome, which is which is interesting. I would say also at a macro level, China is going to eat our lunch when it comes to sustainable technology and sustainable development, I believe. And that's that's partially just because they have to. They have no choice. They have such intensification happening, such large environmental problems to deal with that, you know, they aren't any longer sort of sitting and pausing going, well, we're not going to do it unless it makes financial sense. They're just doing it. And so you're seeing interesting both both large-scale planning development happening there but there are you know one of the companies i think i sent you called broad developments which you know, you know some of the i'm going to take a quick tangent but some of the the pending sort of uh, thresholds that are going to limit this industry are, are skilled labor uh, shortage of skilled labor uh, increase of material costs and sort of the the time to market on things. So there's there's a company called Broad Developments who's really been focusing on prefabrication, which does a lot of quality control, lets you do a lot more in an enclosed environment to get better better performance products, that type of thing. And they've, you know, they they've done several buildings now, but I think they recently erected a 50 story building in 16 days, you know, which is unheard of, yeah. which, which, which uh, <laughs> changed a lot of things. Wow. Yeah. Um, so so lots of things like that going on that are, that are sort of like going to ripple in and yeah, I could go on with lots of examples of that, but but uh, I, I would say in general, there's lots of exciting things happening. There's there's actually uh, even some venture capital firms now that are focused only on building materials, which was unheard of ten years ago. You know, so you're you're starting to see a lot of money come into the space. I would say I don't know what's happening in the states as much, but in Canada, like this year alone, I think there's been five new what they call prop tech firms, which is really you know venture capital for property technologies. So it's a, it's an exciting kind of movement of things going along, and now it's it's becoming a bit more of how do you create an environment in these firms that's not used to fast paced change? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah know, these get are great. Up to that speed, so yeah, yeah. great examples here, and, and we'll uh, we'll definitely be sharing the links to these businesses and these ideas on the show notes as well. Jonathan, I want to thank you again for your time today. Uh, before we jump off, the last question I always ask is, you know, tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online links, websites, or just in general, uh, what are you up to? Yeah, so uh, on on, webs- on the web, you can find us at windmilldevelopments.com and our consulting division is urbanequation.ca. I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to the social <laughs> media. So I've just been still struggling with about how to use it effectively in a way that doesn't become more of a distraction than a benefit. So, you know, really LinkedIn, other places, but I don't have a lot of social media outlets at the moment. That's okay. Fair enough. We'll uh, we'll share the link to the website, and, and and folks can find you on LinkedIn as well if they want to reach out directly. Yes. Um, Jonathan, thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com/transformingcities. Or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.